We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For this week's 
bonus review. We are traveling back to the 1960s and current day Soho to talk about Edgar Wright's latest film, Last Night in Soho. It stars Thomas and McKenzie, Anya Taylor-Joy, Matt Smith, Diana Rigg, Michael Aho, and Tarrant Stamp. The story is of an aspiring young fashion designer obsessed with the swinging 60s named Ellie who moves to London for fashion school. And after moving off campus, because let's just be real, on-campus life sucks, she begins having these vivid dreams of a young, confident blonde named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who herself aspires to become a 60s singer and then begins to design all her classwork around these visions. And as these dreams continue, she does discover that Sandy's journey, just like hers, isn't as romantic a rise to fame as she once thought it would be. Oz, that's a beautiful name. What were your thoughts on Last Night in Soho? In fact, before we dive into that, your thoughts on Edgar Wright as a filmmaker? I don't think we've we've never had the conversation. Are you a fan of his work? I love Edgar Wright. I okay. think he's great. I think that he utilizes other genre tropes in a in a way that you know, obviously Tarantino and others that we've talked about on the podcast do, but does it with more energy and verve and the sort of uh, sense of life and fun and puckishness to the way that he that he plays around with genre conventions. I think my my first Edgar Wright exposure, as probably was for for most folks, was Shaun of the Dead. I know that he had a TV show that he spearheaded beforehand, which I've seen subsequently called Spaced. But for me, it was Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz that really put him on my radar. I've liked, uh, quite liked actually, all of his films thus far. And Last Night in Soho is no exception to the trend. I, I'm strongly positive about this movie, even though I have some some significant issues with the with the last act of the film. I think that's going to be the common critique because it's exactly my thoughts too. I think he's a great filmmaker. I like the Cornetto trilogy. I really like Baby Driver's first act and soundtrack. Um, I really like the first hour of this movie. And I, I think it's arguably the best thing he's done. It's easily my favorite thing he's done. But as you mentioned, the second half of this movie is has some issues. Um, overall, though, what were your thoughts walking out of the theater of Last Night in Soho? So I thought the first, and I'm, I'm hesitant, I, I, I'm not exactly checking my watch during movies, but the first hour plus of this was about as much as I've enjoyed anything I've seen in a movie theater this year. I thought mm-hmm. it was just energetic, vibrant filmmaking with these needle drops that are so effectively deployed, both to play at your emotions, but also to play at your excitement. I just felt fired up about sort of life, the universe and everything for most of this movie. And even as I was watching it, I could feel because how many horror movies actually stick the landing, especially these sort of, I think horror movies that are, you know, real world based, it's a little easier. The, the stuff where there needs to be an explanation for why we have ghosts or visions or hauntings or whatever else, that, that stuff basically never works for me. And I, I had this creeping sense of dread as I watched the movie that whatever resolution we got wasn't going to be all that satisfying. And I'll say that thematically, I thought the resolution here was was interesting and effective, but I, I have some real issues, and I'm surprised saying this about Edgar Wright, who I adore, with the execution. I, I thought it in the, the last act and sort of all the reveals lean into, and obviously we'll, we'll save any particular spoilers for the end of the pod, 
but it leans into a lot of uh, CGI. It's a stylized thing, though. It's not necessarily like bad CGI ruins it like a superhero movie or something, but it leans into these like big stylistic swings that just don't quite pull off. And it's just it's a little bit of it's a little bit of a bummer because I think that this this was very close to being like my number one movie for the year. And it just the last act is too it's too rough for me. What do you think? So before I get to the last act, the first half, again, is borderline perfect. And it it depicts two things really well. The obvious is just what it's like when you have a dream and you go to pursue it and you have this idea of what that journey is going to look like. And then reality hits. And I think with all of us, especially adults, we had an idea of what that rise to an accomplishment will look like. And then you actually look at what that journey looks like. You know, I think I liken it to if they tell you never to meet your heroes, you have an idea of what it'd be like to meet somebody. Then you meet them and it's like, oh, you're actually an asshole. You're actually a flawed human and you have to adjust. I actually heard a story last week of somebody who always wanted to work for the Madison Square Garden. Then he worked there and it's like, it's the worst place I've ever worked. It's the worst job I ever had. And those types of aspirations are given to Ellie here. Wanted to move to London, got accepted to the school she wanted to go to. And then within a day, it's destroyed. It's like, oh, this isn't the romantic like city life that I always wanted to. I've heard this a lot about people who've moved to New York and it's like, oh, the city that never sleeps. I can't wait to move there. Then you move there and it's like, oh, it, subways and sewer systems. Great. She has that uh, uh, mirage blown up for her immediately about Soho, but then also has that mirage blown up for her about the 60s, a time that she romanticizes and then when some revelations come out about Sandy's journey, she has that taken away from her. And I, I really enjoyed that. I mean, it's not a twist. It's just a thematic thing that she has to go through. And I really enjoy it. Second thing that's depicted really well, and it's a little more subtle, but it's also kind of obvious. is just how awkward and awful your first year of college is. I, I know you can relate to this. The, uh, well, okay. So you went locally for school. I went down south. And it's the well, first time I saw a Confederate flag. It's the first time I saw <laughs> that like, oh, you've never met a person of color in your life. Like th- like seeing the other half of the world just blow up like, oh, this was going to be college. And then actual other ideals are, are met and people with other sleep schedules ruin your, <laughs> your time there. Um, her moving off campus happened much quicker than my moving off campus. But the relief you have when it's like, oh my gosh, I can go to bed when I want to, not when my roommates allow me to, <laughs> was just kind of perfect. So I really enjoy that element of it, Oz. So I, I actually went to boarding school. Um, for college too? I thought you went for, to high for, school. Yeah, for high school for boarding school down oh, in okay. And then I went up to Massachusetts for, for college. So college was an easy transition for me. It wasn't really any different than what I was used to. I'd like to pretend that the drinking was a new occurrence in college, but you know who, know, who knows? Mistakes are made. So, so I the, guess maybe the, the, law, law school for me was like the fun times because gotcha. I was I was a college athlete, and that meant and for each it was all year round. I was cross country and track, and that that is all three fucking semesters or all three seasons, and that sucks, and it it takes up a lot of your time. So for me, I think the real like fun experience was actually law school, which is nobody's fun experience. But uh, I think it does really capture a, a sort of essence of getting out on your own and sort of finding what 
makes you happy. And I think that they, they, uh, the Jocasta character, who's her yeah. roommate, is is so delightfully perfect. The performance is a little arch, and I think it really, really works. It, it's it's so funny the way that she spins and manipulates conversation to kind of make herself the most interesting person. And I think Wright is such a a smart filmmaker because subtly, without doing the chosen one narrative, he, he makes clear that. Well, yes, the Jocasta character is the loudest one in the batch of fashion school. It's actually Ellie, who is the the Thomas and McKenzie character, who's the talent. And you see it in subtle ways, the ways people interact with her, the ways people look at her work, the ways the teachers in the school interact with her. There's just a, a real savvy here on display in the first two thirds for a for a writer director who can sometimes go very, very big uh, here. It's, it's more smartly deployed than I think he sometimes otherwise does. I just, I really, I, I bought her arc entirely and, you know, sort of ghostly hauntings from the past is perhaps not my ideal plot device. And here it just, it just really, it really, really works for me. I think the introduction to the, to the Anya Taylor joy character and her introduction to the Matt Smith character who if you've seen the trailer you'll realize is the heel of the film it is just a uh, it is such such bravura energetic filmmaking we we at some point in the mythological alien episode you'll hear us deep dive production design but uh the production design here in the 60s is absolutely astonishing i i'm sure for my own personal uh oscar list it's it's gonna be top of mind for me it's just a beautifully realized world of the 60s and obviously it's not this is an exact accurate period depiction it's stylized in a way that i think works and catches both a vibe for the positive and the sort of romanticized almost austin powers-esque 60s and also this sort of grittier underbelly that wright's playing around with well it's funny and we will address said mythological alien episode at the end of the pod um what's funny is you mentioned that it's never not really your cup of tea the uh, the visions or or seeing ghosts or uh, the the Haley Joe Osment of it all. <laughs> like there's no real explanation how, how she has this power. And for those, I guess who haven't seen the movie yet, I don't think it's a spoiler to say she can see a vision of uh, it's, it's said in the first 10 minutes of the movie, her mother is dead. Her mother passed away when she was younger, but she sees her mother's ghost every time she looks in the mirror. And then when she moves to to London and then off campus to Soho, she sees visions of Sandy again, the young blonde and then her rise. So it's convincing to her that this is a real thing because of this power. And while that ability is never explained, I don't necessarily think it's necessary to explain how she got that, that power while, you know, an, an element of mental health and the history of her family comes up later in the movie, which is the only explanation I need. Like, oh, she might actually have like be schizophrenic or might see something, which might be what we're watching is from her perspective, what that looks like, which I appreciated. Um, you mentioned all the, the filmmaking elements. The the score is really good. You like the needle drops, as you said, uh, the costumes, the, the, as we said, production design, all top notch. Anya Taylor-Joy remains like one of my favorite working actresses right now. I'm getting all the good things out the way because I wanted to say like there is an hour of this movie that I really enjoyed 
and I was with Oz. I was ready to say this is my favorite film of the year. Then a thing happens and it happens around, ironically, a Halloween party at, at in this movie. And a reveal is made in Sandy's story that then creeps into uh, into Ellie's story that affects the rest of the movie and changes it from like this 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 uh, thriller into a horror movie and a whodunit. And I just it it hits a lot of. We, we talked about uh, in the Halloween episode, um, there are some tropes and some just tricks that I, I, I never enjoy in horror movies. For example, the jump scare that's solely based off of camera movement, where you turn to the left, there's nobody there. You turn back to the right to look to, to continue the scene. You turn back, there's something there and the music is loud. And it's like, okay, that's, that's not horror. That's just like literally anything could happen. My brother could walk her out from around the corner and scare me. And that's, that's not a horror movie. And I think it's, 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 it's lazy is what I'd call it. And then, as you mentioned, the last, the last act of this movie, I think just does not work. And we could talk about it in spoilers, but yeah, Oz, I, what specifically for you didn't work the most about the last half of this movie? So there are, there are sort of two significant twists that happen in the last act and something mm -hmm. I found interesting, just kind of bantering with other film nerds about this movie. And evidently it's another one where it's a good movie. You should see it in theaters because we're not going to get any more movies aimed at adults in theaters <laughs> because you assholes don't go see things. So stuff like this in the last duel won't exist anymore. I love comic book movies, but we're only going to have fucking comic book movies. If you don't start going to the damn theater, but uh, leaving that aside, how do you really feel <laughs> leaving that every, aside? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> everyone that I've talked to about this movie has a different place um, mm. where they sort of turn on it in the last act. And even people who come out very strongly positive overall, like I do still have moments where they're like, eh, that really didn't quite work for me. It's actually really late in the game. Uh, it's mm. probably in the last 10 or 15 minutes. Um, there, there's a reveal that happens, which I think is kind of effective. And then the consequences of that reveal didn't work for me in a way that very much took me out of the out of the story. And as I mentioned, there's kind of some production and CGI issues that that just don't work. And I get that Wright is going for something kind of grandiose and allegorical. And obviously, it's it, as he does in all of his films, playing reference to a, a whole mess of 60s and 70s horror movies, particularly some uh, Italian giallo horror movies. But um, yeah, it just the last 10 or 15 minutes really failed the landing for me. I know I was still I think I was still feeling it longer than you were based on what you're saying right now. And we'll save the particulars for the spoiler, the spoiler section. But yeah, look, there's just no way around the fact that the, the, the landing is not stuck as cleanly as one might like here. To add that this is Diana Rigg, um, Lady Olena, uh, her last on-screen role, RIP. Um, uh, she's given some stuff to do, as you mentioned in the, the second half of this movie that you take it or leave it. Uh, Terrence Stamp, General Zod, uh, is in this movie, and I, I kind of the the reveal the, the reveal about his character. I I've, didn't, I will save it for spoilers. I will just I, he's he's good in what he's given. I just personally thought some of the things that 
the script uh, was hinting at were obvious to where there's no way this is actually where this is headed. And then the reveal happened. And it's like, oh, yeah, duh. Um, the uh, romance storyline that's in this movie where Anya Taylor, not, excuse me, where uh, where Ellie's got a boy that's interested in him. Did that work for you? Because it really didn't work for me. You know, I have to say it strangely did. I, I'm not okay. familiar. I'm not familiar with the actor Michael Ajao, who plays the the love interest John, but um, he he is incredibly against type from what you would expect in this sort of role. Um, he he's a black man, but somewhat. I, I want to be careful with my language here, but he's not exactly the sort of alpha male sort. And it's not really the the typical love interest you see for the pretty girl in the horror movie. And I think it gives it kind of an interesting, uh, more intimate and human dynamic than what would happen if you had a more classical leading man sort in the in the role. I, I do think he's effective because it plays so much against type. And I think it's important to have someone who's less of a stereotypical alpha bro guy as her support mechanism because it leaves her a little more on her own. And I know there's there's some complex issues of, of gender politics with the way the film cast that role and, and sort of the, the roles the two occupy in the relationship. But I, I think it does make for something interesting and a little off the beaten path. And I think something that kind of steps aside from Wright's usual play in the tropes of horror to try to do something a little bit different. And I, I personally found it effective. I thought their their banter together was cute. I thought his supportiveness was effective. I'll, I'll also say just broadly that there's a, a, a significant thought around this movie that using a black actor in a part that will come, you know, adjacent to a sexual assault um, criticism of a, of a white woman. And it's more complex how it happens in the movie. It's not, mm -hmm. it's not really how I'm presenting it here. I, I think it's, it's a fair concern that folks are, are raising about the movie, but it didn't really, it didn't really change the effectiveness of the performance or the actor for me. So I, I, I liked it. Why, why didn't you like him? So there's a, a portion of this movie where I wondered if he was real is what I'll say. I, because of the unreliable narration of Ellie's character. And again, you're given the uh, idea early on that she sees things that aren't there. I was wondering if that's the direction we were headed, that the entire arc of his story does not exist, which would have, bothered me more if that's the, the way they used that character having said that i just if because he is a real person and because he is a real character in the movie there's just not given a, a enough for me to see what he sees in ellie to stick around after some of the experiences that he goes through why is he ever showing up and and especially after the allegation that's made um, I just didn't understand why he hasn't hit the hit the ground running, uh, like like head for the hills at a certain point. And again, part of that I thought was just to be the unreliable narrator for Ellie. I thought they were just going to be like, well, this is from her perspective, not his. But then you get some of his perspective, and it's like, do you remember what happened last night in Soho, my guy? Like, wh wh why? What do you see that makes you keep coming back around? I hear what you're saying. And the the reason I disagree is because I think Wright goes out of his way. Look, this movie covers a long span of time on a calendar. 
in its hour and 50 minutes, perhaps longer than I think is, is made clear because they don't do like, it's now fall, it's mm-hmm. now Christmas sort of things. I think it's clear that that she, the, the Thomas and McKenzie character, is the realest person in the room. I think it's clear that nearly all of her female fashion school classmates are frauds and pretenders and folks who are there trying to almost do like an Instagram famous version of fashion. And I think he is drawn, I think it's made pretty clear actually, to the fact that she's the only person who actually has original thoughts and genuine emotions to share in conversation. Every other guy in this movie is either a quasi pimp, a purveyor of prostitutes, or like a guy who uses you know, incredibly cheesy lines at bars to pick women up. Like there, this is not a movie where guys come off well. And I think the, um, I, I think the, the way the relationship is depicted is perhaps the realest aside from Ellie and her grandmother of any in this movie. And I think that gave it a little extra weight and let me buy in. I get what you're saying because there are hinge points where the guy should probably be like, fuck off I'm done with yeah, you. Yeah, like they're deal breaker things that I but think ha- happen. Haven't you ever liked a girl where you're like, uh, she's still better than the other options. I'm I'm still feeling mm. it even though I'm pretty fucking angry right now. Not after a certain thing happens that makes me then go, okay, this is there's something else going on here that this is not the one. And maybe I'm applying hindsight to this, maybe I'm applying my own sensibilities to this character. I just at a certain point was like, okay, why do you keep chasing after her when things are clearly happening that will be more harmful for to you, which then lead to that. But I, I just, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't also either buy their chemistry as well. So it, it's maybe just a thing that didn't work for me. Um, I, yeah, everything else I want to talk about is a spoiler. So let's get to, let me, let me give one more non-spoiler. Go ahead, thing, go ahead. Non-spoiler. It's, it's, it's Diana Riggs final performance. Uh, Diana Riggs is a wonderful, wonderful actress. Who's, probably best known for playing Elena Terrell, as you mentioned on Game of Thrones. I, I would also recommend On Her Majesty's Secret Service, where she is the second best Bond girl ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'll say that, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that you don't, you don't cast the Queen of Thorns to have her meekly be the uh, landlady exclusively of the place where the Thomas and McKenzie character moves. And I, I found it effective to have her uh, utilized the way she was. And I, I think that few people deliver menacing monologue as well as Diana Rigg does. I, she will be missed. I now know the first question I have to ask you when we get to spoilers. Uh, first things first, what is your score on Letterboxd? I think it's an eight. Uh, weird. You came out with the same negativity about the last act as I did. And I'm I'm much lower. I'm, I'm at a six. The last act, the, the, the second half of this movie, I think just didn't sit right with me while acknowledging that if I had to like split it in two, the first half of this movie is probably an eight or a nine. And then the second half being like a four or five for me. Um, okay. I worry that everyone's going to think I'm an optimist because I've only said positive things so far. So far. Yeah. The, <laughs> it makes me really better. I just watched the paranormal activity and that's like a two out of 10. So there we go. Surprise. It's that high. Um, do you, would this change any of your scores? And I had one that, I think would work. How about would this now rank for you for Halloween movies? Movies that take place on Halloween. 
It's not an all in oh, one day, man. so it doesn't work. I don't think because we said if it, there's just a Halloween scene in the movie, but it did come out on Halloween weekend and it is a horror movie. Kind of. I'm going to say that it's not Halloween enough, okay. um, even okay. though I it, it certainly does have a, a pretty stark Halloween scene in it. But yes. I, I, I would think about it, but it's probably not going to make it. OK, this would uh, in the infamous one one day to air alien episode. Um, this may be up there for production design, but I don't think it would crap my top five. Uh, Same. There's there's some performances when these actresses come up in the future that I think would would potentially rank because, again, Thomas and McKenzie, I think this is the first time I've seen her as an adult in a movie. And I think this is it was convincing. She's only 21 years old in real life and she plays like a first year college student really well. And, and uh, she's, she's the confusion that she has, the trauma that she clearly is going through, the meekness then leading to confidence. Uh, her entire arc is really well done, especially playing against uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who is just, again, just really great in this. Okay. Let, yeah, okay. Anya, uh, yeah. Anya Taylor-Joy, she's on everyone's list already. Everyone adores her. I don't, I don't need to sing her praises. She's great here. She's great pretty much everywhere. And she can sing too. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thomas McKenzie is really, really talented and comes from my side, the indie side of things, but you, mm-hmm. you may know her as the, the Jew in the closet and Jojo rabbit. Uh, I know her as the daughter good. in Leave No Trace, one of my favorite movies of the last decade. Leave No Trace is very good. The True History of the Kelly Gang is really good. She's good and old, even though I think the movie is not. Uh, <laughs> she's also in a movie that's coming out later this year. It's one of Netflix's big award bait movies called Power of the Dog, which is a Jane Campion movie with Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst, where she's got a smaller part, but again, quite good. Uh, she is a talent to keep an eye on because she's going to be in our Oscar conversations for the next 20 years. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash wire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's get into spoilers. So, did you guess any of the reveals that Near- the big one, the big one being that the vision that Ellie has is of so the vision she has is of um the pimp, I'll call him, the Matt Smith character murdering Sandy, Anya Taylor-Joy, that it was actually in reverse that Anya Taylor-Joy that Sandy killed Matt Smith. Um, or that Terrence Stamp was actually not Matt Smith in the future, but the detective that shows up in one of the visions. And then the big one that Diana Rigg is Sandy and that she's she murdered all the men that she's been having visions of and that they're all buried in her house somewhere. Uh, the answer is yes. I I frankly, you don't you as I said in the non spoiler part, you don't cast Diana Rigg without. Mm-hmm a plan for her and to see her have like three little throwaway lines as like this protective grandmotherly sort in the house when there's already a protective grandmother in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was clear to me that that carried more weight and because that carried more weight and there are a few, a few lines, like when she mentions how she would have killed the boy when the, the boyfriend is leaving, had she gotten there a little earlier uh, when the, the sexual assault dream sequence um, it, that was what sold it to me that I, I was pretty sure not only was she, uh, was she uh, either the Anya Taylor joy character or someone directly related to her, but also had her own murderous history and, and past. So mm-hmm. I, I did pick up on it. I mean, I can't, it's not like a pat me on the back. I've figured this out sort of, sort no, of thing. Right just, like just, once you're eliminating suspects as the mysteries unfolding, like it, it it kind of narrow it down. Like, okay, this is probably going to be obvious. I thought maybe her mother might come into play here, but once you, once you do the timeline and you like, even the line about that phone is only for emergencies. Like, okay. So that line means later she's going to have to make an emergency phone call. Some of it is kind of obvious. Um, So did the twist worked for you, but the execution didn't. What didn't work for me is there's a, there's a, and it felt like it was a very long sequence. It was probably about three minutes of the movie. But after the twist, I struggled a little bit with the notion that the Diana Rigg character would try to poison the Ellie character. I, I just didn't quite buy that. It didn't It didn't feel mm. right to me. I feel like she would have tried to turn her to the dark side or some version of that. 
first. And then from there, it goes a little nuts. And there's this sequence of Thomas and Mackenzie trying to crawl up the stairs to escape from Diana Rigg while she's poisoned. And it keeps kind of flashing back and forth to like a vision world of Anya Taylor-Joy attempting to slash her. And it just, it didn't work at all. It's it's like sort of a CGI universe that it happens in. And I found it very off-putting and distracting and really badly took me out of things. And there's just a lot of rough CGI fire in the final sequence where the Diana Rigg character kind of accepts her fate. Um, that I just, I, I, every horror movie feels like this at the end to me with, with very rare exceptions. Like I don't know, get out's a good exception that has actually has a good ending, but most horror movies end very poorly. And this, this was no, no exception for me. And I guess maybe I, I've mentally steeled myself for the fact that unless it's a slasher movie and I'm getting like a gore fest for the last 10 minutes, I'm going to leave, you know, disappointed and frustrated and annoyed because payoffs never, never worth the journey uh, or never lives up to the journey. So I, I guess that's, uh, yeah, that's where I come down. Where, where, so where did it lose you? Cause it was very late that it lost me. Literally the Michael Ajao scene when she has the vision of Sandy being murdered while they're fooling around mm-hmm. and she's, she then falls off the bed and is screaming bloody murder. And Michael then jumps jumps off and is like wondering what's going on, how that doesn't trigger run, especially coming from the perspective of a person of color. Like, I know the implications that will be here. Like, you now have to like there are simply just things now that you can't just reconsider and then be like, oh, well, I wonder if she's OK. No, like there's some personal protection that I think would kick in for me, at least. Now, look, there's some things here that I can't rectify because I'm an American. I don't know what the politics of London are as far as race are concerned. Um, Not great. (laughs) Not great. But like as a result, I don't know if like there is an expectation that this would be how he would act in London. But I picked up on that part that you mentioned in the non-spoiler part of the show. I then don't understand why he's at all like interested in her knowing that like the last time I saw you, you freaked out. And like, what if again, what if Sandy called, I'm calling her Sandy now. What if Diana Rigg calls the cops then, which she says she does. And as a black man with this going on, it just took me out from there. And then all of the I'm seeing ghosts that are going on. It just felt like a very stereotypical horror movie that had some jump scares that don't work for me. Also, the scene in the library where she almost stabs her roommate. There's no follow up on that. Like, wait a minute. Yeah, my my roommate who's got a family history of mental health issues, like almost stabbed me in the library. And there's never a second scene of like, yeah. We had to ban her from or a restraining order was was placed. There are just some loose ends that aren't tied on, which I thought was going to lead to more of not a lot of this is actually happening. And then when you find out that all of these things did happen, it doesn't work for me as much because of now where I have to go back and see where the Thomas and McKenzie character was actually having human experiences and how I would react in those human experiences, observing it at least that that's where it fell apart for me. I don't really have a lot of responses to that. I think those are, those are pretty fair complaints. I, I, I don't think that writes the sort of filmmaker who, who makes movies that care to tie up 
all the loose ends. I, I just don't think it's something that interests him. Uh, but I get it because he he's a very careful filmmaker. Every single thing that you see on screen has been thought through. Every poster, every book, every every single second is really meticulously thought through. So it is a little strange when there are threads that don't really get paid off. I think part of it is a pacing thing because like all horror movies, you want to sort of slowly accelerate and accelerate and accelerate until you're going full bore in the last act. And we get our sort of mother-esque crazy running through <laughs> London sequence um, at the, you know, late in the film. Uh, I think he just doesn't want to slow down for that sort of thing. And part of it is I think you're you're just supposed to assume it was resolved in the, the you know, there's a, a gap at the end before you get the epilogue. And I think it's you're just meant to assume that it was all fixed in mm -hmm. that era. But I, I agree generally, there's not a clear explanation for, um, you know, what the mental health issue at play is here or how, you know, how, how it's treated at the school. I, I would certainly think, and I, I'm certainly not a, a legal expert on school expulsions, but if uh -huh. you attempt to stab your uh, former roommate and classmate well on school grounds, I think with that that's so many that witnesses you. there, Oz. That's the other issue. Come get you. Know, I think that's I don't know. That gets you. You're right. I think it gets you a little bit expelled. So it's hard to imagine that you get a fashion show for yourself a couple months later at the same school. I, I agree. Right. Like imagine you're at law school and you're studying in the library and all of a sudden you hear a girl yelling. Right. And then you turn the corner and you I wonder see, where John Macri was. Right, ah, well played. So let's let's put Macri into this analogy. You turn the corner and you see the that yelling, the, the woman screaming, charging toward another woman with what was it? A piece of it was a scissor. It was a, a, a thing scissor. Of, yeah. OK, so she has scissors in her hand and she's about to stab. And then the heroic John Macri grabs her hand as she's about to impale said other woman. And then just it all goes away. Like, like no, no reference. Are you just supposed to be like, oh, wow, I wonder, I hope she's okay. And then like four months later, you see her as the lead in a fashion show as like, oh, let's celebrate this lead designer. It's like, oh yeah, that's the girl from the library four months ago. That totally wasn't an experience I would continue. There is a throwaway, to be fair, of the Michael Zhao character following the uh, Jocasta character and you know saying like, oh, she's having problems or something like that. Well, mm -hmm. the Jocasta character screams for campus safety to come yeah, protect her. I think. But there's at least there's at least some you, you can imagine uh, a conversation between the two if you feel so inclined. Maybe it's in the novelization that uh, <laughs> that explains this out. Look, I, I agree there. There are there are holes here, but I think if you play this game with any horror movie i there are no horror movies that are free of third act holes so that's where the overall uh piece here doesn't work for me because again the first half isn't a horror movie the first half i thought was actually paying attention to all of these details and that, like the subtle things were working you know and then you add the second half and it's like oh now this is just a lazy horror movie but the first half is exceptional with a lot of attention to detail. So that's where it, it felt off for me. If you're going to make that, if you're going to make Halloween kills, then I will turn my brain off and enjoy your very by the numbers horror movie. But then when I have the brilliant first half, I'm, I'm, I'm left wondering why this wasn't the entire movie. So I, 
I think I do come out positive more than negative on this. I think there are just too many questions I have about uh, maybe things that aren't important to the plot, but then I don't know how you get the conclusion that you get without those questions being answered. At least that's yep. me. That's that's fair. I, I think the the experience enraptured me more than the uh, quibbles took me out of it. So we set our scores. I think we will wrap that up on last night in Soho. It's available everywhere movies are playing. And as Oz mentioned in the non-spoiler portion, um, please see movies. Even if it's not this movie, please see movies. Just um, please go to Belfast comes out in two weeks. Nobody's yes. going to go see that movie. Please. It's so good. It's so moving. It's only like 98 minutes. Also, please go see it so that in the future, people will keep making movies for grownups and not for my fucking son. Uh-huh. Please, I beg you, even if you don't like it, lie. Say you like it. Get more people to go to movies so that we can have movie theaters five years from now. Please. Can I just hit you with some Edgar Wright reality? And oh, hit me. Yeah, I don't think we're headed that. I think we're headed toward a direction where the only way these movies will get seen is if they're on, maybe not necessarily Paramount Plus, but if they're available at home. I, I go back to what we talked about at the last mm-hmm. tool. I think everybody learned a different way to enjoy movies during the pandemic. And I don't think it's solvable. However, there's a superhero movie coming out next weekend, which will probably do a lot of money. And, you know, that will be why we go to movies in the future is to see the big budget stuff and not necessarily like, so perfect example, shout out to my parents who wanted to go see Dune this weekend. I told them to go see it on the biggest screen possible. But my dad's in grad school at the moment. He's, he's, later in life, finally getting his master's. And he's like, yeah, I have so much reading I have to do. I don't know if I can make it like the 20 minute drive to the theater, the 25 minutes of preview for a two and a half hour movie that his son said, see in IMAX, you know? And then I was like, well, okay, well, it's on HBO Max if you want. It's like, oh, really? Great. And guess what my parents did last night? Watched it on HBO Max. So like, the inconvenience it's becoming of going to the movies. Guess who was on their phone the first 15 minutes of last night in Zoho? The couple next to me, to the point where I actually got up and moved over. And then they didn't move, they didn't go to their phone the rest of the night. So the hint was taken without me having to say anything. Um yeah, I I'm I echo your your sentiments. I just don't know if the damage hasn't already been done. I, I gotta tell you, you're right. I mean, the damage is done. People want it. The reality is that people want to watch movies on their TV instead of in theaters because the mm-hmm. experience sucks too much. I, you would think that at a film festival, things would be great. I went to see Spencer at a film festival about a week ago, mm. even at a fucking film festival, there was someone who checked her phone like five times in the first 20 minutes of the movie. Mm. Like, fuck off and die like yeah. if i can't go to a stabber with a pair stabber with a I, pair of scissors. i yeah. wish someone had <laughs> were i a little closer i certainly would have said something but i i just i i people are too fucking selfish also and it ruins the experience for everyone else so you go to these theaters with broken ass seats the recliners don't work and some fucking asshole is like fighting with his girlfriend behind you and some asshole is on his phone in front of you i get it but you know for for at least the some of us, some of us want this to work and maybe it's just you and me and we're just, we're just 
echoing against the dying of the light here, but I, I would really like to be able to see movies in theaters for the rest of my days and not as some sort of weird touring premium experience like 10 years after it comes out on Netflix. But I know the reality is coming. I, I, I want to hit you with a question before we, oh, go ahead. Before we depart. What, what is your, uh, what's your Edgar Wright film ranking? At this point. Oh, wow. I guess we, will, we shouldn't wait until an Edgar Wright movie to do this. Um, There's only like six of them. So Right, uh, right. I, look, it's the entire Cornetto trilogy is in there. Um, I would probably. So, so you got you got Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, yeah. Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, The World's End, Baby Driver, Sparks Brothers, which is a documentary. So I guess we can omit. And Last Night in Soho. Yeah, I'd put the entire Cornetto trilogy in there. Um so I'm omitting one is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of Scott Pilgrim, but I can't say it's his worst movie. Um, I like baby driver, but Holy fuck. Am I about to eliminate last night in Soho? The first hour of that movie is really great though. Ah, uh, you put it on the spot. Okay. What I'll do is I'll eliminate at world's end. Um, and then I'll put, I'll put, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, in some order, Baby Driver, Scott Pilgrim, Last Night in Soho. That would be my five. What about you? I'm going, I, this is really hard because I really like this filmmaker. I am going to put Shaun of the Dead first, Mm -hmm. put Scott Pilgrim second, Hot Fuzz third, this fourth, um, Baby Driver fifth and World's End sixth. Yeah. And Sparks Brothers seventh, only probably because Sparks just doesn't mean anything to me. The movie didn't <laughs> particularly click and it's a documentary. It's not really the same style of filmmaking. Um, yeah, I guess I, I think I'm overdue to rewatch World's End because I've heard a lot of folks saying positive things about it recently. But uh, yeah, I like all of his movies. I think he's great. That's what happened to me with Scott Pilgrim is enough people caping for it whose opinion I trust. You might be one of them that told me I had to rewatch it. And during... The pandemic, it was on Netflix. Like, all right, I will give this another shot. And just like, oh, this is this is actually very good. Okay. There was like a two-week stretch where every person I know rewatched Scott Pilgrim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was good stuff. Uh okay. Last thing before we get out of here. To those that saw our announcement on Twitter, uh, a lot of things happened to our alien pod. First of all, it got rescheduled a bunch of times. Uh, I had some uh, a family health scare that forced us to push it back a week. Oz had a power outage that made us push it back a day to recording literally at 1230 at night. Uh, Oz, you remain yep. a champion in my book and your work ethic is one of the uh, most impressive things I've ever seen. And it's why I throw all these accolades at you because after we recorded said alien pod last week, I I do not know what happened. I have a recorder that I usually put all the audio on. I transfer it over to my computer as soon as we get done. And then it disappeared. I've looked everywhere on my computer. I've looked everywhere on my backup files. It is not there. I've restored every site recycle bin that I can. And I just, I do not see where this audio file is. And as a result, Oz and I had to just kind of say, like throw our hands up specifically. I had to throw my hands up and say, you know what? It, it appears a Xenomorph or powers that be have decided that they do not want us to review aliens. It's, just it's yet. Jeff Bezos because you compared Amazon to Wayland Yutani. That in the pod, I said that the, the company that potentially, 
uh, uh, sent ash in order to uh, infect everybody and to just get an alien who cares about the safety of the ship uh, is a metaphor or a prediction for Bezos. And that if you just said that Amazon did this, the story would still work. And apparently his people listening uh, made it possible that that pod disappeared, which makes you wonder Will this pod ever air, Oz? Uh, that being said, uh, we do have a gap in two weeks, which is a week and a half before um, the Ridley Scott's next movie, uh, House of Gucci, comes out, starring um, Gaga. Gaga, Adam Driver's in that too, right? Yep, and Pacino and Jared Leto doing another one of his freak show things. Yep, yes. looks fun. Yeah, so I think we can just kind of recap re, we may just review alien then instead and just move things uh that way um but as promised we always do end the pod before um the final review with the score or a, a music a, a a needle drop that triggers what your next final review will be so i will end this pod first of all asking oz do you have anything you'd like to plug uh, follow me on Twitter Oz, at Oz on Movies. Come to theinventionofdreams.com. That's all I got. Okay. Um, follow the pod on Twitter at Final Review Pod. Uh, we, we'll be doing all week, as always, the top fives and clips from the movies so that we can get ready for it like we do. Thank you for listening. If you dig the show, head over to iTunes, drop a five star rating and a review. And as always, thank you for listening. Stay safe out there. And tune in next time for another final review. Logan, what did you do? Charles, the world is not the same as it was. Mutants. They're gone now. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real Where is she? Beneath the stain She's like you Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.